somebody sends me something, I hear something, and I'm just shaking my head like, oh my gosh, not this, not that, again and again and again. So why is there so much confusion in the churches today? Why does evangelicalism seem like it's on the verge of collapsing? Who exactly is responsible for the current state of our churches? And I mean that in terms of categories. As you look at your church, what kind of condition is it in? What kind of state is it in? What is its spiritual health and readiness? And who's responsible for that? If you look at your church, if you look at your church and you see a sick body that is nowhere close to being uh, or resembling an, a New Testament church, someone's responsible for that. Who would that be? All right. This today is September 2nd, and you are listening to episode 38 of the Reformed Rant, and we're going to talk about what is wrong with our churches and the current debacle that's taking place in the Southern Baptist Con Convention specifically because the Southern Baptist Convention, when it comes to evangelical churches, they're not one and the same, but they're pretty close to being one and the same. So put on your thinking cap. I've got a lot to say. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, and uh, I have a lot on my mind. So let's get to it. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. podcast. In fact, the last podcast I published was on July 30th. I lost a close friend of mine in the month of uh, August, and uh, I've just uh, been processing that. And so I'm going to go ahead and jump back in and uh, try to pick up where we, we left off. Talking about the problems that are going on uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and I'm going to pin most of those problems right now on the leadership in the churches, and that begins with the top, and works its right works its way right down into the leadership in the local churches. Because it's my view that if the men in the local churches, the pastors, and those churches that have elders, uh, if those men would stand up and push back hard on the errors that we see coming down, the ideas coming down from the top, uh, 
then, uh, and I hate to use the expression top, but for lack of a better way of talking about it, then I think some of these things could be uh, affected and changed. But uh, as it stands, uh, we just have too many guys in our churches who are who see this as a career, who do not have a biblical attitude or perspective on, on what it is to be an elder or pastor in the church of Jesus Christ. It's much, much closer to what you would see from people who are running a business. And I know because I've done both and I'm involved in uh, corporate America right now. I work in uh, human resources. So I, I can see uh, both worlds and I see that the the leaders in the churches are mimicking or and viewing themselves much more like a business owner or someone who's an entrepreneur or someone who is running a business and they think about their field like uh, someone thinks about a, a secular career and uh, that's that's part of the part of the problem so let's go ahead and let's go ahead and jump into it number one and this is not in any order of importance. I'm going to talk about the problems that I see, and I'm going to talk about some a potential solution, my own opinion about solution. And I think my opinion is informed by Scripture. I can, I'm not going to make a, an argument here necessarily for that, for my my opinion, because that's not the purpose of this podcast. There's not enough time, uh, but I can defend my view, and I'm ready to talk to anyone um, about why I think the way I think about the uh, goings-on in our churches. So one problem, we'll start here, is our churches are populated predominantly with false con false converts. That's And I've said this over and over and over again, and if there's any, any one thing that I would say, what do you need to have in order to have a healthy church? Well, you got to keep the false converts to a minimum. You're not going to eliminate them completely. But you have to take the idea of false converts in church membership seriously. And and our leaders don't do that. Our churches don't do that because our leaders don't do that and they don't talk about it. Look at it this way. Look at it this way. Imagine Old Testament Israel um, refusing to stone adulterers or fornicators or murderers, or homosexuals, or whatever. Fill in the blank. The The capital punishments laid out in the Old Testament were there for a reason. So imagine Israel just saying, we're not going to do that. We're just, we're just not going to do that. That's harsh. That's exactly the attitude that we see in modern American pastors, elders in the SBC and evangelical churches this is all of them. This isn't just the SBC. This is your independent Baptists and, I mean, your Presbyterians, your P PCA guys. I mean, this is everywhere. Churches just don't seem to care. There, there is an attitude of indifference about membership in our churches. So that's a second problem that's related to the problem of the existence of false converts in the church. A huge problem in our churches is the complete lack of true adult education and discipleship. Now, I said I work in human resources, uh, and the area that I work in in human resources is called business readiness 
uh, and it's a it it it's for all intents and purposes this is uh, the area of L and D, okay, um, and I know what adult education should look like. I've been doing it for years, okay. Uh, well, our modern Sunday school classes, our modern classes that we have in our churches, even on Wednesday nights, isn't true. Uh, education and discipleship it's just not so that's a massive problem there's no real discipleship taking place in most churches one-on-one older men pouring themselves into younger men who are humble submissive and eager to learn okay so why not well let's go back to the elders our pastors elder and elders are indifferent to the need, it seems. This idea gets lip service. At best, it gets lip service. If you don't have a program in place that's managed in intentionally, where you have one-on-one discipleship taking place, older men training younger men, deliberately, where there are conversations and structure and, to a degree, accountability, um, then you don't have discipleship going on in your church. You know, to get 50 men in a room and have a uh, somebody stand up there and you know talk talk and call it a Bible study, uh, and to call that discipleship is silly. That's not discipleship. So our pastors are indifferent to the need. Uh, another issue here is that young men, um, <laughs> many of these young guys are just narcissists who think older men have nothing of value to impart to them. They look at older men and they think we're older and we don't have anything to say. We're out of touch, we're antiquated, and we're dismissed. And that's a problem. That attitude uh, could be an indication that you're dealing with a false convert. It's not a Christian attitude. Now, it doesn't mean the person isn't saved necessarily, but it does mean that you've got an issue there that gives you cause to open up that area of their life for discussion. And you'll find out. You know, if they give you the middle finger and tell you they're not going to submit to someone and be trained by someone else, that they know it all because, you know, after all, they're a college graduate and they don't need some old guy telling them how uh, how to understand the Bible, then maybe you are dealing with a false convert. The point is it needs attention. It needs someone looking at it and doing something with it. And we're not doing that. Another problem uh, in this particular area is that older men have not been trained themselves. That's, that's a problem. You don't have guys in your church who are trained to be mentors, and uh, that's unacceptable. And another issue on the part of older men is apathetic to those responsibilities. They just don't care. They don't see this as something they want to do. Um, so, and again, I'm going to say it one more time. Our pastors and elders are apathetic to the need. We're checking boxes. We are not doing our best. We could do tons better. And for the sake of Christ and the high calling of God that our leaders have, they shouldn't do anything less than their best. How in the world is that honoring to God? So the uh, next area is the education model. The education model in our churches is designed like a cafeteria. People come in and ask, can they teach their pet subject? And our pastors are afraid to say no. And they let them teach their pet subject. This model is not 
adult education. It's designed to pacify and check the box. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later. It's part of the solution. Another problem is the lack of plurality of godly elders as opposed to deacons who are most of them clueless or in those cases where there are elders, men who are simply just yes men and the, the head pastor, the senior pastor is really calling all the shots anyways and no one wants to stand up to him or disagree with him or no one wants to disagree with the majority of elders. No, no, everyone is afraid to uh, introduce and be contrary and the reason for that is we're having it drilled into us that that's just being critical and negative and you've got a critical spirit and that's just not being very Christ-like. This is a recipe for disaster. It is antithetical to critical thinking. It is antithetical to biblical discernment, which is a mandate from Christ for us to be critical critical thinkers, and discerning. Test everything, Scripture says. Well, modern Americans will say, no, that's just having a negative, pessimistic, critical spirit. And what, the, what that is, is a sneaky, sly tactic of the devil to slip in his stuff unchallenged, to bring in error and even heresy unchallenged. Right? So the next issue is that there are three uh, dominant groups right now in the churches that are spreading cancer, unlike anybody's business, spiritual cancer. The first is women. The second is homosexuals. The third is African-Americans. Not in general, only certain African-Americans. African-American liberation, and of course not women in general. I'm talking about categories here. All right, so don't, please don't think that I'm indicting everybody that might fit in that group. So the problem with women in the churches. First of all, women are allowed to define terms. And I'll give you an example. Take the idea of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. How do we define that? What do we look to to say, what does that look like? Do we look to scripture? Do we look to the first century where it was written in the Mediterranean world, in Palestine? Judaism? Do we look there? No, we don't. We look here and we ask the women. Now, I already said we have an issue with training in our churches. So now you have untrained, spiritually light females who are showing us men who are supposed to be the leaders in the church what it looks like. For us to love our wives as Christ loves the church. And you get all kinds of nonsense going on when you do that. What we look at, if you really want to understand how to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, is you look at the historical background and the context in which it was written. You do not consult modern American women. That is the absolute biggest mistake you could possibly make. Okay. Uh, second, women are being touted as actually being called to the office of teacher. Big, big problem. Women pastors are on the rise. Complementarianism is attacked 
on numerous fronts, and egalitarianism is being smuggled into the churches under the ruse of a soft complementarianism, which is nothing more than egalitarianism dressed up, wearing a cloak, sneaking in, sneaking in. Okay, Women have demanded co-leadership roles to be co-leaders with their husbands, and, and men have surrendered this. My wife and I lead the family together. Well, God didn't call your wife to be a co-leader of the family. God called you to be a co-leader, a leader, co-leader. God called you to be the leader of that family. There can only be one leader. That role falls to the man. Now, women, modern women, despise this. It's a problem. This is a great test to see if someone has truly been converted to Christ because people who convert to Christ submit to Christ. And you cannot reject the role of women as ordained by God and submit to Christ. The biblical mandate for submission by these women is scorned in every practical sense of the word, even though the idea is given lip service. And this is true for men too, because it's it's the men who are supposed to be the leaders who are surrendering their roles. And that is an affront to God. God called you to stand up and be a leader, be a man, act like a man. This is scorned by modern women. This attitude that I'm describing to you is scorned. It's being mocked right now today, not just in American culture, but in the churches. The biblical mandate for submission is the one of the greatest tests to see if someone's truly converted. Not just for women, for all of us as Christians. Submission is an essential element of biblical fruit that shows we have been truly converted. Women are teaching Sunday school classes, both female classes and classes that are mixed. And I'll have, I have news for you. Neither one of these is supported by Scripture, and the latter is outright condemned by it. I am quickly coming to the conclusion that women should not be teaching biblical theology or the Bible to any adult in the church. It is not their role. If you look at the New Testament, you do not see that role anywhere espoused in Scripture, which means women shouldn't teach mixed Sunday school classes. They should not teach female-only classes of any kind. They should not teach in seminary, and by all means, they should not pastor churches or be in charge of something like that. They are not called into leadership positions. Not if you read the New Testament. They do not have the, the gift of teaching that the New Testament talks about. They do not have that because that is a gift where someone is endowed with the gift to teach and they're called to teach the body of Christ. That is the context for what that gift is. But we find all kinds of magical ways to get around the Scripture don't we? We have untrained women who get most of their thinking about the role of women in the churches from the pagan culture. 
these women are undiscerning. And they're teaching the rest of the women in our churches, our wives, using materials written by women who most of them are in rebellion against God and whose errors range from serious error to outright heresy. It is a very effective way to create a toxic environment in the churches where the God-ordained role of women is concerned. And if you look around at the controversies that are going on, the hashtag Me Too that came rushing into the church and it was nothing more than a guise, a ruse to once again push for women pastors. It's very, very simple. Now I'm gonna I'm going to stop right here and I'm, I'm gonna play a clip for you from Jen Wilkin, who is a ministry leader uh, and teaches mixed groups uh, over at Matt Chandler's church. A comment that she made at the, uh, I think it was the most recent uh, Southern Baptist Convention. All right, so let me cue this up and I'll be right back. Um, and then frankly, I think the other question that women are asking is, would that we had devoted as much attention as we have to whether women can preach to the question of how qualified the men are that are preaching? We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Now, that first clip was Jen Wilkin at the Southern Baptist Convention actually talking about how women are asking the question regarding the qualifications for men to be in ministry, which is, uh, in my view, a question that is not for women to ask. It is a question for the leaders, the men in the church to ask. And the fact that women are comfortable asking those kinds of questions is indicative of an attitude that has been embraced by those women that is far more aligned with pagan thinking, modern American cultural thinking, feminist thinking, than it is uh, about women uh, thinking the way Scripture teaches women to think. It is not the job of women to scrutinize whether or not men are qualified to be in ministry or not. That's the job of the men in the church, the leaders in the church, the elders in the church. Period. End of, end of discussion. Now, I understand. I understand how unpopular, how radical that kind of thinking uh, seems in our current culture. But if you were to take me and send me back in time to first, Christi first century Christianity, it wouldn't even be close to controversy. In fact, wouldn't even have to go that far back. It's only in modern American culture that this kind of thinking is viewed as uh, misogynistic, maybe. I mean, like antiquated, backward. And I guarantee you, when some pastors who are reformed, who are supposedly conservative, hear this kind of thinking, they're going to be shocked. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if we go back to Scripture, 
and to the culture and the background in which Scripture was written, this attitude wouldn't even be thought controversial for a, a nanosecond. All right, so, and then the second clip is J.D. Greer quoting Jen Wilkin. So not only is the, is the and I've dealt with that, that sermon on a previous episode, but my point here is that this is a, a female that came into Greer's church and spoke, and Greer was listening, so apparently she was teaching a mixed audience, and he's quoting her. So she's influencing the president of the Southern Baptist Convention as a, as a female Bible teacher, supposedly, I mean, in, 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 our, in our day. And that's an, another huge part of, of the problem. Jen Wilkin should not be doing what she's doing any more than Beth Moore. Beth Moore uh, may be uh, slightly worse from the standpoint that she's in, embraced outright heretics, but I really don't see much of a difference between those two women. They're cut from the same cloth. They have the same attitude and the same views in terms of uh, female leadership in the churches, and those views are, are clearly unbiblical. The next area is the group. Next group in the church is the is the homosexual movement, under the guise of same sex attraction. Um, the homosexual homosexuality is making its way into the churches, uh, and we're we're going to let people convince us that these people are celibate, even though they have the sexual urge. Um, they're somehow going to be able to manage that urge and remain celibate. This has led to a side effect. Uh, of condemning the basic family unit that is ordained by God. It's an institution put in place from the beginning by God. And these people, uh, homosexuals, are coming in and now trying to convince the church that the family unit has been turned into an idol of sorts and it needs to be dismantled so that the single lifestyle can be exalted, something that you won't find in ancient Judaism, uh, the idea of being a eunuch or being single was highly unusual, uh, although it existed, and it was viewed as a gift, a special calling from God. So singleness is a gift from God. It is a special calling from God, but the scripture is clear. If you have the desire for sexual activity, that it is better to marry than to allow that desire to burn within you um, because it's going to cause you to sin, right? If you, if you don't have a real desire to have companionship and sexual activity like uh, the average human being has, then perhaps you do have the gift of singleness and you should completely devote yourself to Christ and doing the work of Christ. But if that's not the case, you're playing with fire. Anyhow, so if one looks at the theme in, in what's going on between the women and the homosexuals, there is a desire to deconstruct divine design in every area of human life. You see this with the gender dysphoria movement, right? Here it's showing up in the unnatural and detestable acts committed in the homosexual lifestyle. Uh, and it's just clearly... Uh, 
iniquity on every in every sense of that word lawlessness that's being paraded that's being celebrated that's being exalted this is not we look at these we look at these people and we do not see what they're doing to god we we look at these people and we've been trained to look at them and think, oh, if they only knew Jesus. Oh, I feel so sorry for them. Well, that's not how the scripture describes these people. They are celebrating the what is antithetical to God in every way and extolling it as virtuous, as as the highest of virtues. Right. Our leaders, to be honest, our leaders should should be ashamed of themselves. Because from, from my standpoint, I'm watching all of this go on. I live in the real world. And I'm watching the women engage in the attitudes and the behavior and the thinking that they're engaging in. And I'm watching our leaders empower that. I'm watching our leaders not only not do anything to keep to keep that in check, to correct it, to rebuke it in love and, and with gentleness even, they're not doing that. The actions they are taking is adding fuel to that fire. And if they are complementarian, eventually that fire is going to overtake them. The same is true with the homosexual movement. I've been made aware that we've even had a couple in our own church that where one pastor who is very sensitive or, I don't want to say friendly to homosexuality, uh, seems to have a soft position here on same-sex attraction uh, and, and, and swore that at one point in time that one of these people was saved and now this guy is out on Twitter making comments about that are sexual in nature to other men and it's just off the chart pernicious. Clearly the guy does not know Christ. And our leaders should be ashamed of themselves. Personally, I think some, some of these positions that some of our leaders are taking up in terms of homosexuality should get them fired. They should be removed from the ministry. You cannot be for same-sex attraction and okay with same-sex attraction and be ordained and walk in leadership position in the church. It's really simple. That's my position. Very simple. If you think it's okay to be same-sex attracted and someone does not have to mortify that desire itself because it is sin itself, whether you act on it or not ever, then you shouldn't be a pastor. Real simple. Third, we have the African-American push. And I don't mean African-American in general because uh, Vody Bauckham is one of my favorite preachers. <laughs> so I am very specific here in terms of what I mean. I mean the liberation theology, the black liberation theology ideas, the Marxism and so forth that are creeping into the church. People like Jackie Hill Perry, who uh, in a recent video I saw her talking about the atro atrocities of the past committed against black slaves over, over to Bible-thumping wingnut. She's talking about lynching and talking about the audience. None of you were there. Well, she wasn't there either, right? She wasn't there. No African-American alive today was there when this happened, okay? And yeah, there are atrocities committed by whites against blacks through American slavery that were evil and ungodly and wicked. And some of those atrocities were committed by people who claimed to love Christ. And they don't. They didn't. Right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson, this guy, we talk about, you know, someone was talking about uh, him having a... Uh, uh, 
a slave as a concubine, sort of. But you know, Thomas Jefferson's biggest problem was what he did to the Bible. Not uh, a, an African-American female slave. This man destroyed the word of God. So <clears throat> we have Jarvis Williams who twists scripture at every turn because he looks at everything in scripture through the lens of race, as does Jackie Hill Perry, as does Thabiti Anyabwili, Ron Burns, continually talking about the uh, slavery that existed in American history and how that many white evangelicals were in, involved with that slavery. None of these guys, it seems to be lost on them, recall how the Apostle Paul was also in a world where there was slavery, as was Peter and James and John and Jude and Jesus and Moses and Isaiah and Elijah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and not one of them condemned the institution of slavery, ever. Somehow they get a pass, but guys like George Whitfield or any other white evangelical, not to mention that there were African Americans who owned African American slaves, and not to mention the history of slavery predates white European slavery by, I don't know how many years, thousands, thousands, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Yet, these guys can't shut up about it. And you ask the question, well, you know, gosh, what's, what really is the driver? And the driver is political. It's not biblical. It's not theological. It's not exegetical because there's no support from it in Scripture. Now, these guys want to go back to Israel and talk about uh, how God had told the, the nation of Israel to act and behave as a theocracy. Not only as a theocracy, but the nation of Israel existed at the time as a type of church. So within the Christian community, we would have to ask the question, how does the laws and regulations of ancient Israel carry over into the church. And I gave one analogy earlier. In ancient Israel, they stoned adulterers and fornicators and murderers and liars. They stoned them. In the church, and in other words, they put them, they removed them from the community through death. We remove them from the community, just like Israel removed them from the community, but we do it through excommunication. But what we have is the, the leaders of uh, the church refusing to honor that principle because they're too busy building their kingdoms. They know that if they started excommunicating everybody in the church who, who would live in unrepentant sin, there wouldn't be much left. So they can't do that. And that's really what it comes down to, folks, in my view. That's really 
That's really what it comes down to because there are cases where clear excommunication needs to take place and the church needs to see it and experience it, know what it is, be familiar with it. And they just think that they have the right to ignore it. And that's an interesting thing to me. I look at it with, with bewilderment because I, ha I have to live by certain policies at, t at, uh, at the uh, firm that I work at. And if I don't, if I violate those policies, especially as someone who is uh, a registered principal, I'd lose my job. I have to take those rules, those laws, extremely seriously. I have to take our policies very seriously. My livelihood depends on it. Not only that, as a Christian, I am commanded to, to respect that authority, to honor that authority. We have pastors in our churches who think that they can actually refuse to honor God and put their best foot forward to carry out his mandates. It's amazing to me. You add, you, you, to this issue, you look at guys like Matt Chandler, J.D. Greer, David Platt, Russell Moore. All of these guys are on board with this divisive and hateful attitude, and it's only going to continue to create division in the churches. And remember, division is one of the seven sins that God hates. He calls it out, right? So what is the solution? Well, in short, the gospel is the solution. The gospel but even that has been corrupted and perverted into a social gospel where we spend most of our time giving people water and bread and very little time confronting them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call it friendship evangelism, and we spend all of our time being friends and very little time giving them the truth of the gospel. And we do that because we really don't believe that it's the gospel that's the power of God into salvation. We think it's the gospel plus our clever techniques and strategies. That if we don't come up with clever ways to give people the truth, then they're not going to be converted. And that is clearly outside the lines of Scripture. The Bible couldn't be clearer. God brings his own to himself through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ given to them. And, of course, we want to give the gospel to people in the right spirit, with, in love. I mean, we, it's, there is a very poor way to present the gospel, and then there's a, a biblical way to present the gospel. So I'm, but this not, that's not the purpose of this podcast. I think you understand what I'm talking about. So that's part of the solution. Another part of the solution is that we must come to a biblical understanding of divine sovereignty in every area of our lives. This is something that's been neglected in our church, including the area of, of soteriology, the sal that salvation is a work of God alone. Arminianism has to be corrected much more aggressively than it is today. I stop short of calling all Arminians heretics because most of them are just uh, inconsistent in their Arminianism. The consistent Arminians who take it to its logical end are heretics. There's no question in my mind about that. And they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They reject the revelation of God in Scripture and do all kinds of perverse things to that revelation. All right. So we have to do a better job there. American history and its slavery, those were carried out according to the purpose of God, which he, he decreed prior to, to creation. That's how you have to think about that as you look back across our history. God placed you where he placed you. And your number one job as a believer is to image God exactly where he placed you. Whether it was as a slave in, in uh, American history 
or it's free today, or it was a slave in Roman times. Your goal is to glorify God and image God where you're at, where God placed you. That's all of our goals. That's the single purpose of our existence is to image God and glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Grace says that everyone deserves to be enslaved. There isn't an African-American, or there isn't an African, in the history of American slavery who didn't deserve every evil they suffered because, like every single one of us, they shook their fist at God and engaged in all kinds of idolatry, the same as we do, the same as every human being does. So every human being deserves to be enslaved in the worst conditions possible because we have hated God. That's where you start with this attitude, and then you go from there. And then another point here is, is that you, you cannot condemn slave owners just generically, universally, and praise Martin Luther King Jr. without committing outright hypocrisy at its core. It is that simple. We have to stop the feminist, homosexual, black liberation deconstruction of the Bible. I saw a tweet from a lady the other day who said she wanted to scream at the coffee shop because um, men were reading the scriptures. And she says to women that if, if men are reading the scriptures, then you have a very flawed interpretation and reading of the scripture. It needs to be read by women, I suppose. And I would guess both men and women and from their perspectives in order to have a, a true perspective on what the scripture is teaching. And that is absolute rubbish. Feminism at its core. What do you think the Apostle Paul would have said? So here's the thing, folks. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year period by over 40 people. Not one of them was a woman. Jesus picked 12 disciples, later turned into 12 apostles to lead the church and to write the scriptures. The prophets wrote the scriptures. Not one of them was a woman. What does this tell us about Jesus? Hmm. Scripture is self-interpreting. No, it does not need a woman's perspective. It does not need a gay's perspective. It does not need a black, yellow, white, or brown perspective. It needs to be read in its historical context. You have to leave your perspective behind if you want to understand Scripture. Otherwise, all you're doing is imposing your perspective on Scripture, and guess what you're doing? You're rewriting the text for you. That has to stop. Next, we have to get serious about church membership and baptisms. Stop the practice of bringing everybody in as members without serious scrutiny. And stop baptizing kids. I mean, you're baptizing six and seven and eight-year-old kids. Are they converted? I am highly skeptical that that's the case. But we do it. Why? Because their moms and dads want them to get baptized. And we want to make mommy and daddy happy. 
Just like when women come to our churches and want to teach classes using books written by other women that shouldn't be influencing our own folks, we can't say no. Or we just don't see how it's that big a deal. In other words, we're not putting our best foot forward. We're not giving it the kind of scrutiny that it deserves. This is a big job. Leading a church is a big job. Serving as an elder is a big job. Teaching other people is a big job. You, you should appreciate that and respect it. Pastors, you have to take your job seriously. You have to honestly seek to do your best. So here's, here's, here, here, here it is in a nutshell. Install a, plural, a plurality of elders in your church. Have a true education plan for your Sunday school teachers. Train them deliberately, on purpose, with structure and discipline. Only men should lead and teach adult classes in the church of any kind, Sunday school or otherwise. Only men. Meet every fall. Plan the upcoming year. Understand the culture and the needs of the church. Select the topics yourselves as elders. And then select the people you want to teach those, those subjects. And then train them. Seriously train them. And then execute the plan. It's hard work. It really is hard work. But nothing is more critical to the spiritual health of the churches than this. All right. Now, that's all I'm going to say about this for now. This is just a big rant, uh, a buildup as I've watched things happen since the passing of, of my good friend. And it's just, uh, just built up. And I felt like I wanted to put something up for folks. And hopefully you get something out of this. Hopefully uh, it, it will challenge your thinking. It will, it will uh, provoke you to to think about these things better or more deeply. Maybe you'll end up disagreeing with me on some things. That's fine. Um, I, I believe in, in unity, and I think that we don't always have to have the same exact view on these issues, but I have arrived at these positions as I look at what's going on in the culture and I see what's contributing to some of the issues in the churches, and we just have to we just have to stop both the direct and even the indirect things that are coming into our churches and 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 moving the church further and further and further away from biblical Christianity. All right. So my real goal is to get back over the next few days to uh, putting together a series on Arminianism. We're going to walk through what Arminianism is, ancient Arminianism uh, as it first came out in the uh, in the sixteenth. Uh, 17th centuries with uh, Jacob Arminius and the Remonstrance. At any rate, uh, thank you for listening. God bless. If you want to leave a comment and you're listening to this podcast on the Anchor app, you can do that right inside the app. Otherwise, you can go over to Reformed Reasons, the website, uh, and uh, uh, leave a comment over there. Or even better, you could go to Reformation Charlotte uh, on Facebook there's a couple of different Reformation Charlotte pages, and you can jump on there and uh, you know ask to join the group. And a lot of good conversation, a lot of good articles, and so forth. And uh, you can uh, always reach out to us at Reformation Charlotte. God bless. Keep the faith. Stay in the fight. Continue to love and live the truth of Jesus Christ in this culture. Don't ever stop 
giving people the gospel with how you live and especially you have to use your mouth. <laughs> so continue to proclaim the truth. Continue to live the truth. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe.